0: On October 24th, 1942, 88 RAF Lancasters from Five Group took off at lunchtime from bases all over North and Eastern England. Their target was the industrial complex in Milan, but this was the first daylight bombing raid, and for one aircraft, G for George, the anti-aircraft fire would prove all too deadly. My name is John Pope. I'm a volunteer speaker with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and a story moderator on the Forevermore series, which details the lives of people who died for their countries. I have an interest in the ordinary men and women who served in extraordinary times. But who were they? Where did they come from? What did they do before the war? And why did they join up? Some were volunteers and some were conscripts. Some had the time of their lives, while others were scarred mentally and physically, or simply failed to return home. They weren't all heroes, and they weren't all decorated. But for most, war at home and abroad was an experience which shaped them and changed them. Drawing on books, official records, internet resources and the personal recollections from friends and families... I've pieced together just some of the stories of those who served. Join me in this episode to learn more about Flight Sergeant Westmore Colquhoun of the Royal Australian Air Force. Westmore Arthur Colquhoun was born in Druin, a small town east of Melbourne, Victoria, in southeastern Australia on the 20th of August 1920. His father, Connolly Colhoun was originally from Glasgow, while his mother Priscilla Colhoun Nema Kernan, was native to Australia, although her father had been born in Dublin. Westmore grew up in small-town Victoria as the son of a butcher, and both he and his younger brother William intended to join their father's butchery business. But the war intervened. And Westmore joined the Royal Australian Air Force as a reservist as soon as war was declared in 1939. He joined the Empire Air Training Scheme, the EATS, which was formed to provide trained air crews to fight with the RAF. Westmore and other Australian recruits received their elementary training at air bases around Australia before being sent overseas for advanced training. More than 10,000 Australians received training in Canada and Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, before joining the RAF in Britain. Sergeant Colhoun, then only 21, joined the Air Gunnery Unit and was sent to Britain in mid-1941 as part of the Royal Australian Air Force. He was sent to RAF Scampton to join 49th Squadron, flying Hamdons, Manchesters and Lancasters. By May 1942, he found himself as one of the crew of g for george Lancaster W4306. The pilot, Flight Lieutenant Dorian Bonnet, Sergeant Bob Wallace, the flight engineer, and the rear gunner, Sergeant Eric Brooks, were all from Britain. The other four crew members were all from Australia. Westmore Colquhoun, mid-upper gunner, Flight Sergeant Dick Dangerfield, the navigator, Flight Sergeant Ray Lawrence, wireless operator, and Pilot Officer Bill Myers, the front gunner. A photograph of the crew with g for george can be seen on the Those Who Served website. A typical Bomber Command crew could expect to serve a tour of 30 missions, with a six-month gap as a trainer, followed by a second tour. Losses were high, 55,578 were killed out of a total of 125,000 aircrew, a rate of 44%. The living and operating conditions meant that crews quickly became very close and found themselves in the thick of it from the very start. This extract is from a letter written by Ray Lawrence to a friend in Australia in early October 1942. Last month, our crew was placed top in all of Bomber Command. You can't realise what an honour this is to us. They gave the pilot a DFC, and the bomb aimer and navigator both a DFM. I missed out, but I'm told I'm sure to be awarded with one before or on completion of my ops. How they select the top crew is by the number of photos brought back from the target we're briefed to bomb. I can assure you I've had some pretty shaky times. Bremen, the worst looking spot of the lot, was flaring with light, medium, and heavy flak, and hundreds of searchlights. It's not so bad when you get into it, but just before you go into it, it looks grim. The trouble was with us, the first time we went to Bremen, we came out north and then back over Wilhelmshaven, instead of coming out the way we went in. As a result, we were the only kite over Wilhelmshaven, and did they give us hell? They shot at us till we finally crossed the coast. The mid-upper gunner had a big flak hole through the perspex of his turret just above his head. I think the only time I've got a scare is when we went to bomb Weismar, which is just between Lübeck and Rostock. It was mainly cloud and bad icing conditions all the way over, but we finally arrived at Rostock. Every machine seemed to be bombing Rostock, but we weren't satisfied so we cruised down the coast with flagships taking potshots at us for 35 minutes Then we finally pinpointed ourselves on the coast and began to run into the Bay of Weismar. It was pretty cloudy and we were down to six thousand feet, whereas the safety level is twelve thousand. There was nothing going on at Weismar at all, and when we thought we were just over the outskirts of the town, they opened up on us. I think they threw everything up us but the guns. We were the only machine there, and they plotted us all the way in, and boy did they belt us. I'm not kidding when I say I was resigned to die. The flak was rattling and flashing all around us, and you could smell the cordite fumes in the machine. Well, our machine went into a dive, which the pilot pulled out of at 4,000 feet. Meanwhile, we'd opened the bomb doors and got rid of our incendiaries, which we were carrying that night. They're very unhealthy to carry as a piece of flak will set the whole lot off. We finally got out of it and looked back to see what effect our incendiaries had had, and sure enough, they'd landed, we think, in the town, and a very rosy fire was glowing and even visible through the clouds for nearly a hundred miles. We also had seven very scared men in the kite too. To top it off we were diverted to another aerodrome as the weather around ours was too bad for landing. The next morning we found we were the somewhat doubtful proud owners of seven holes through the machine. I have a piece of flak which entered the aircraft just behind me in the wireless op seat. The rear turret had a hole in the perspex this time. I honestly think I'll live to be a hundred after escaping that night it would prove to be a prophetic statement. Although by then, Sergeant Lawrence and most of his crew had completed almost all of their 30 operational flights and would soon be due a six-month break as instructors with training units. Sergeant Westmore Colquhoun had completed 14 and his next sortie would be his last. Early on the morning of Saturday the 24th of October 1942, Orders were received at RAF Scampton for a daylight attack on the city of Milan. In this hazardous operation, the 88 Lancasters of Five Group were to take off at noon and fly independently across France, using the cloud as cover, before arriving at Lake Annecy, the group's rendezvous point. Milan-Turin and the port city of Genoa were often targeted as Italy's industrial triangle. The bombers arrived over Milan at around 5pm, and the anti-aircraft defences were taken by surprise, perhaps because it was still daylight. The bombers descended below the cloud base of 4,500 feet to deliver over 135 tonnes of bombs, including incendiaries, in just 18 minutes. It caused severe damage to the railway stations and started over 300 fires. Only one attacking aircraft was lost to anti-aircraft fire. G for George had been damaged by flak over the target, but on the way home to Britain, it received additional damage from anti-aircraft fire over La Havre. The stricken plane crossed the coast near Portsmouth and turned east. Unable to make it north to RAF Scampton, pilot Dorian Bonnet aimed to land at nearby Ford Airfield. Sergeant Westmore Colquhoun later recalled, the aircraft was badly damaged, but she still held together, and we had the wireless on. We turned on the identification friend or foe. We just wanted to send an SOS on the IFF, just red. Anyway, they brought us in through the Ford searchlights, just kept waving us in. It was dark now, about eight or nine o'clock in the evening. I don't think we had much fuel left. We couldn't get high enough to bail out. There was no climbing power. I can remember seeing the spire of Chichester Cathedral go past. We followed these searchlights and they took us to Ford, 30 or 40 searchlights came up in a cone, so it was bright as day. They did everything they could to give us a hand, so we started to make an approach, and we got into crash positions. We had to get the rear gunner out because he was in a bit of a daze from when the flak had hit us. He wasn't in too good a shape. As we reduced speed, the starboard wing just dropped over, and she went straight in. The fuselage broke in half just behind me. She was burning. I turned around, but my legs weren't working too good. I grabbed one chap. I think he was the rear gunner. I could hear someone moaning, but I couldn't see who it was. I grabbed him by the harness and started back out again. Then someone took me by the arm and stuck a needle in it. And that's the last thing I can remember. Sergeant Westmore Colquhoun was badly injured and spent four weeks in hospital in Chichester recovering from his injuries. Sergeant Eric Brooks, the rear gunner he rescued from the burning aircraft, died of his wounds six days later, on the 30th of October. He's buried in the family plot at Earlsfield Cemetery in Southwest London. All five of the remaining crew members died in the crash and are buried in Littlehampton Cemetery, just a few miles away from the scene. Photographs of their headstones can be seen on the Those Who Served website. The injuries Sergeant Westmore Colhoun sustained were sufficient to prevent his return to active service and he was discharged from operational missions after 15 sorties. He remained on active service in a training role and completed the war as a warrant officer. He remained as a reservist in the RAAF until 1948, some years after his return home. In 1945 he returned to Australia with his brother William. The two men rejoined the family butchers on the Princes Highway in the Dandenongs, just east of Melbourne. In 1947, Westmore married Esther Cinnamon, and they had three children, and later a host of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They lived quietly in the town in which Westmore had been raised, until he died in October 1988, aged 67. Esther lived until 2017, dying aged 94 and both are buried in Druin. Westmore Colquhoun knew he was fortunate to survive the crash in October 1942. His three crewmates from Australia were unlucky, as were the 10,562 other RAAF personnel who died on active service. They're commemorated on the RAAF memorial at Adelaide Airport in South Australia. I'd like to thank the Colhoun family, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission for access to their archives, my eyes on hands-on colleague Carl Rusbridge, and the 49th Squadron Association website for some of the photographs and information on the episode extras page of the Those Who Served website. Until next time, thank you for listening to Those Who Served with me, John Pope. You can listen to the show via the website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or a host of other platforms. If you listen on Apple, please leave a review, as it makes the show easier for other Apple users to find. You can follow the show on social media via Twitter, at thosewhoserved, or on Instagram, served. You can show your support for this free podcast by clicking on buymeacoffee.com on the Those served website. All funds are used to cover the costs of research, production and syndication. You can join in with the show by sharing what details you know of a family member or friend who served in a 20th century conflict. Contact me directly by email at info at Thank you.